Hello and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and today we travel to Ashland, Kentucky, for a story that gripped the nation in the late 1800s. On Christmas Eve 1881, a horrible crime shook the small town of Ashland and captivated the entire nation. Three children were brutally murdered in their house set ablaze. Nothing in the small town's past had prepared it for what followed. Three men were convicted of the crimes, and two were sentenced to death. But their murderers were protected by the governor's untrained militia, which would eventually turn their guns on Ashland's innocent citizens. Join author H.E. Joe Castle as he adds to the work of J.M. Huff and discover this incredible, captivating true story of one of the darkest chapters in the history of Kentucky. We are also joined by Brandy Clark, who is the executive director of Ashland's Visitor and Tourism Center, to give us a further look into Ashland's during this time period. Joe and Brandy, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's our pleasure, Johnny. Thanks for having us. Yep, thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Um, so we will start with, and Joe and Brady, please add in and tell me uh, um, if you want to, Brandy, but I'm going to start with Joe first. And like I said, Brandy, fill in the gaps. Tell me about the kind of place Ashland was in the very early 1880s before the crimes take place that are talked about in the book. Okay, sure. Uh, Ashland, well, I'll start with the population of Ashland at that time. It was about a little over 3,000 people. And with Ashland being located here on the Ohio River, uh, that made it uh, a lot better for the uh, production of the iron. There was, uh, the soil was rich in iron ore here, and it made it a lot easier to, to produce the, the iron and get it out. And uh, um, so it was a place at the time for um, a lot of progress. And as a matter of fact, it was basically a model of early capitalism and opportunities for everyone. If you wanted to work, you could come to Ashland. Um, the people all seem to be of one mind, basically. Uh, work hard, live right, and enjoy the fruits of your labor. And uh, they all seem to uh, work well together, play well together. Uh, there was a lot of uh, schools and churches being built. Uh, so it was, um, you know, only on a larger scale, uh, it was a whole lot like today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very much so. Just, I mean, it's it's very similar to the way we are today. Ashland is a, what's its population then versus now? Now it's right at 20,000, I believe. It's the largest city in eastern Kentucky. And it has been, I guess, for a long time. Of course, at the time, it wasn't. Uh, I think Catlisburg outranked it uh, for a time because Catlisburg actually became the uh, county seat of Wood County. But, but Ashland obviously outgrew, them, outgrew it. So. Even with a population of 20,000 people, though, you're going to have a lot of people who know each other or they know someone that knows somebody with that amount of people. Because right. even Char- I mean, here where I live in Charleston, has more folks in the town than that, but it's easy to know people or have, you know, a certain degree of separation from somebody who knows somebody. So it's still, mm-hmm. you know, a small town, a small town feel Ashland has. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And, and, and back then, Johnny, at the time there were, there were a lot of large families, you know, I mean, uh, so families, you know, knew other families and, and a lot of them were actually, you know, distantly related. So, Yeah. There was a lot of commonality, I guess. And, you know, with the book, it's it's Christmas Eve. People are getting ready um, for the celebra- uh, 
for however they would celebrate uh, coming on Christmas. And you have people who are looking out for each other. And like you said, they still do their, that today. And you have a mother who is, and I'll let y'all tell us the names, a mother who's leaving and asking if a neighbor's daughter will stay over the night with her daughter um, because she's going, she's going to visit family. So it's just a normal kind of neighbor looking after neighbor kind of day. Uh, and it's not really asking for someone to stay over with somebody because you think something bad's going to happen just to keep company. And it's just, and I'll let, like I said, I'll let y'all tell that part of the story, but it just seems like it's a normal kind of routine uh, day that's happening on Christmas Eve or it, it's just a normal kind of small yeah, town it feel. It, 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 but then as we all know, something can happen um, with a snap of a, f- a finger, you, you snap your fingers and life changes. So what happens on Christmas Eve, 1881, that draws the attention of not just Kentucky and in, in that area around the Ohio River there, but the entire nation? Well, you're right. That was an activity that was very common back then. Uh, people would visit each other and stay overnight. Neighbors would do the same thing. On that particular night, Martha Gibbons, who was the um, the mother of the of the children, the two children that were murdered, uh, she and the youngest boy went to Ironton, Ohio, to visit one of their uh, one of her older married daughters. So she asked the neighbor lady if she would ask or she would allow for her daughter to stay over with uh, Fanny Gibbons and Robert Gibbons, and uh, so she complied. And uh, yes, that was not unusual. It was very common, as a matter of fact. And uh, yes, it was right there at Christmas time on Christmas Eve. And that's one of the reasons why this thing captured so much attention because of the timing of the terrible crime. And it was, it was horrific. It was uh, unspeakable. Uh, Not that crimes like this didn't happen in other places, but uh, it was just um, unbearable for people, especially at the time it happened. And uh, so everything, all the celebrations and and all the plans and everything for the Christmas holiday just had to come to an abrupt halt because uh, the citizens of Ashland were just shocked by what happened. And uh, I don't know if you want me to tell you exactly what happened or not, but uh, the the children were murdered. And uh, <clears throat> then their house was set on fire to try to cover that terrible crime. Um, so again, uh, <clears throat> Uh, the neighborly thing to do was for all the neighbors to rush and try to put yeah. the fire out. And uh, they didn't realize that there was, you know, at, at, at the time that there were three murdered children inside the house until they were able to, to get the bodies out. And then uh, they realized the, the terrible thing that had happened. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's amazing the response to the community, because not only are they doing that, but then it's almost like they set up an investigation because there's a committee, right, that's formed to try to find who has done this. They did. They, uh, the citizens got together immediately that day, <clears throat> on Christmas Eve day, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, formed a committee called the Citizens Committee. Uh, three of the most respectable citizens made up the, the three-man committee, and uh, they were tasked with um, hiring a detective, a professional detective, to come in and, uh, and uh, try to try to find exactly what happened, who was responsible for it. Is this Alf Burnett? Uh, 
Al Burnett was a <laughs> was a detective from Charleston who came down just out of curiosity because um, he was a little bit disappointed that the Citizens Committee didn't hire him. <laughs> uh, but he came, he, yeah, he came anyway. And the uh, interesting thing about Mr. Burnett was he hadn't been in the detective too long. He was formerly in the newspaper business. So he knew the power of the press, and he would use that to his advantage whenever he saw an opportunity. He ended up doing some work on the case and was actually paid by uh, one of the accused one of the accused family members. So he hung around as long as the money stayed, uh, kept coming in. But um, <clears throat> the committee actually hired a more expensive, a more experienced detective who came immediately to Ashland and started working on the case. But before that, let me back up, just um, uh, before uh, they hired the detective and before the uh, um, Citizens Committee was formed, the people that were at the burned house started making their own investigations. And there they found the uh, weapons of destruction that uh, let them know just what exactly had happened to the children. Mm, the axe. I believe is what they, the, the, yeah. The axe and the crowbar, there were actually two weapons that were used. And uh, it was it was obvious that they were used because there was still hair and blood on the pole of the axe and there was hair and blood on the, on the end of the crowbar. And just because, you know, we've talked about, you know, we're barely scratching the surface because there's so much that happens with this book. And yeah, we you know we've talked about Alpernet a little bit. We wanted to touch base on him too because you wanted to talk about him, but also... You know, you get what you pay for with people like that. And obviously they made the right decision in who they hired. Um, so, Joe, this book focuses, focuses and has a lot in it. And But you have a co-author. And at this point, I want you to tell us a little bit about J.M. Huff. Sure. Jane Huff was an, an Ashland newspaper editor at the time. He was very well respected. And... Um, you know, I spent a lot of time at the Boyd County Library researching this thing, and I have to say real quick that those folks at the library were very helpful. Uh, Jim Kettle and Judy Fleming were very helpful. And after finding several articles about the tragedy, I was introduced to a copy of Mr. Huff's little book called The Anderson Tragedy. He had, he had actually witnessed a lot of the uh, drama that took place at the time, and uh, he, he chronicled a lot of the, uh, the action in that little book. And um, so he, he was very trustworthy because he was there. I mean, this man actually had his finger on the pulse of the feelings of the people of Ashland. And um, he was actually there to witness the, uh, the, the, the burn victims. He was in the courtroom during the trials. Um, no doubt he was probably at the funeral. So he had a feeling of everything that was happening and witnessed a lot of it. And uh, so, yes, he wrote it in his little booklet, which has been in the public domain now for a lot of years. But um, I thought uh, that he had covered things very well and very accurately. But what he didn't do, he wasn't able to include all the facts necessary to tell the whole story. And whether he just chose not to or didn't have access to everything, um, so that's what I've done. I've used I've used his little book, and if you look at the copyright page 
in my book, you'll see where this one has been adapted from his little book. And that's why uh, he is listed as co-author. Now, his words uh, comprise approximately 30 to 35 percent of this book. And, uh, yeah. And that's why he is listed as the co-author. Um, so, yeah, um, he really opened the door for me as far as uh, continuing on the story and telling telling the rest of the details of the yeah. horrific, captivating and intriguing story. And it starts off intriguing because the book itself, when you start to read, it's not starting on at Christmas Day. It starts on the gallows. It is quite a journey to even... Okay, so you start at the gallows at the beginning of the book, but it's quite a journey to get to the gallows. Um, because even after, you know, finally you get to three men being fingered for the crime, but there's other su- there's another suspect that's brought in at first, and I don't want to give that away in the book, because like I said, a lot of twists and turns. Um, but when people are, when these men are brought in for the trial, and I don't want to get a, give away how they come to suspect the men, the community is upset about where the trial is going to take place. So either one of you can answer this question. Why is it so important to the people of Ashland for these men to be tried in Ashland? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that, Johnny. They, uh, they felt like that, look, if this crime is going to happen in our community, then we have the right, the knowledge, and the experience to get it tried here. And uh, that's what they worked very, very hard to get done. And as things <clears throat> began to steamroll, and took turns for the worse, uh, that was that was kind of taken away from them, unfairly, actually. And then uh, that instigated a lot of strife and anger, and uh, things just continued to steamroll, and, and, and more things happened. And, and I'll say this uh, right here, Johnny, before we go any further. Um, you know, the, the title of this book could easily have been The Ashton Tragedies. I was about to ask because, that, yeah. Because once the initial crimes were committed, things just kind of steamrolled from one tragedy to the next until the whole, whole horrible affair finally came to arrest. Uh, you know, for, for a period of time, a little more than three years, the drama never stopped. Yeah. And not only is the story filled with brutality, anger, excitement, sorrow, intrigue, and, and resentment, but it tugs at every emotion on the spectrum of human emotion. And, and as far as the uh, people of Ashland, they wanted to see justice and they wanted to see it by law and they wanted to prevent any kind of vigilante justice. And they knew very well that the newspapers would provoke that as much as they could. So they were on guard against that. Plus, they wanted to do what, you know, to do what was right. Speaking of, uh, let, me, let me stop you right there for a second, because speaking of vigilante, who... Tell us a little bit about who are the regulators. Uh, you talk about them in the book, and they, they pop up in the book. So who are the regulators? Well, the, the regulators are, are, are just not necessarily a group of men from Ashland or Boyd County. They, they, were, prop, they were from everywhere. And they were, they were the, a group of people that banded together um, to dole out justice the way they thought it should be doled out and uh well 
they were basically a lynch mob and uh they were from they were from they they were left over from remnants of the revolutionary war actually and any group of, of men well, i don't think women participated but any group of men that banded together as a mob they could call themselves regulators um you know they they could they could uh, work under that uh, under that hat if they wanted to but they they were a problem obviously especially in kentucky after the civil war and uh, so it, it was unknown actually who they actually were that they, they could have been people from ashland they could have been people from outside of ashland um so it's really hard to say johnny who they actually yeah. were i just um, you know you talked about the the media at the at the time, newspapers feeding in all of this. Obviously, it fans the. I, I believe what happens with the regulators in the book, um, which leads to what happens with the militia on the second, you know, steamship issue on the river. Because um, there's one riverboat chase, and there's something else that happens with riverboats later on in the book. Um, it just seems like it's one thing after another that just goes wrong uh, with the. Well, trials because there's you know more than one uh, that happens, and of course there's three different trials, but then there's other trials too. And like you said, there's just so much intrigue because then you have people coming forward saying, "Well, no, here's an actual testimony to what would have happened or did happen," and trying to it seems maybe putting words into um, someone's mouth saying that so and so confessed this way, or they were coerced, and it's almost. Like you have to decide for yourself, you know, what do you believe happens here? And that, that's, you, exactly, that's you, yeah, you're you're exactly right. And, and and you know, people even today that are aware of this story still feel that way. Some of them do. And it, it is a fact that uh, the confessor George Ellis, it, it was reported that he did change his confession three or four times. Uh, and and I say it was reported that he did. I'm not going to say that he actually did. You have to read the book to know for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it did. It, it did cause it caused a lot of more turmoil and strife. Um, but the newspapers were there. The correspondents basically camped out in Ashland to get the story. Uh, of course, the Associated Press, they were still they were in operation by then. So they sent the word out to all their newspapers. And but what what. What's really interesting is that uh, the national interest and concern of the tragedy here in Ashland was felt by people all over the nation. And it wasn't just the Associated Press articles that was going out. There were articles, editorials. There were editorials in newspapers all across the country. There were uh, columns like People Speak and and uh, The Man on the Street, sort of akin to what we would call letters to the editor where people uh, would express their interest and concern over the goings-on in Ashland. So it did. It did capture the entire uh, nation's attention. And had it not been for the trial of Charles Guiteau, the assassin who murdered President Garfield, Mm -hmm. this would have probably been front-page news on every newspaper. And then after Guiteau was finally uh, executed in July of 82, um, then... uh, the uh, tragedies here in Ashland uh, continued to keep the uh, attention of the nation, and, and it was even heightened 
after what happened in November of that year. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is on par with uh, the kind of attention this gets with Lizzie Borden, uh, her trial. And maybe, even, I mean, to me, because it was kind of, it was horrible what happened to Mr. Borden and his wife. But with the three victims you see here, and then the other tragedies that occur in the book, uh, I think it's there's, there's more to this story here. Um, it definitely should have, you know, it's, it's, it's place in the, in, in our consciousness, a historical national consciousness, because I think today if we were going to equate it to something, uh, maybe the OJ Simpson trial, um, Lacey and Scott Peterson, uh, that trial, um, things of that nature, because that seems to be like the kind of attention it would have garnered, um, back in the time period. Um, if there was a Nancy Grace around back then, I'm sure she would have been talking about this on her TV show then. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, but, you know, uh, Johnny, there's there's no stronger word in the English language to describe the events that occurred here than tragedy, really. Mm-hmm. And and as I said before, it could have, the book could have been called The Anson Tragedies because it just kind of steamrolled it. And, um, you know, um, it, of course, it had everyone's attention here local. When I say local, I'm talking about all of Kentucky and central and southern Ohio and even in West Virginia. But then, uh, you know, newspapers all over the all over the country were carrying the story to see what was going on. And uh, because it was it was it was a big deal. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's still and, a big deal today. It's important to remember um, these victims and what happened to them. And then, well, the three victims, then when you read the book and you you read the story, the you know, what happens later on. Uh, hey, Brandy, let me ask you a question real quick. Mm-hmm. Okay. So growing up in Ashland, and Joe, you can answer this too because you're from Ashland. So to both of you, really, what age do you learn this story? Um, I just learned it. I don't want to double, but I just learned it. Uh, that's why I think it's very important. I've lived here all my life, and I think it's so important to get this story out and to show some respect to the victims. Um, it, it's very important. So I I really want to get this, this out there and get more people um, to know what happened. Let me, let me add a little bit to that there, um, Johnny. The, when I was doing the research in the library— uh, I found out then that uh, several of the grade schools here in Ashland would take their fifth grade class to the library and, and teach them about the Ashland tragedy. Wow. So it, it, it has been in the hearts and minds of the people for a long time, but it needs to be reawakened. The consciousness needs to be reawakened about what happened that day. And um, because the, the, the people of Ashland haven't changed. Um, their courage and determination still the same. And I think I think Brandy can speak of this. The recent ice ice storm we just had. Mm-hmm. How that? Um, we'll go ahead. Yeah, we recently had a, a very very bad uh, two ice storms and mm-hmm. then a big snow back to back, and um, thousands of our citizens lost power, and everybody just really banded together and went door to door, took people food, um, took them to our warming centers. Um, so yeah, it, it was very much a community banding together. And I can only imagine what the community did then 
um, when these murders happened. So yeah, it's the people are the same here today as they were then. Well, I mean, we kind of, I mean, we have an idea what, what I mean, what they did. Because if you think about it, they could have the community could have gone a very different way. They could have been divided by the murders and the different opinions in it. But instead, uh, they really banded together, especially after you know the that one big tragedy that we keep teasing about in the book. But they didn't, and to continue, you know, 130 some odd years later, um, I don't want to give my age because I'm kind of near the 130 later years <laughs> mark. But um, to continue to be banded together like that, it just shows that that is passed down from generation to generation in that town, and that is something I think should be celebrated and should be proud of. Definitely not celebrating the murders, but to celebrate that being passed on to be proud of where you come from to be um to show respect for where you come from and that you love your neighbor and that you do what you can for each other that's something that i think to be commended and that's something that you yeah. can get out of a tragic story is that ashland seems to be like a great place to be from and to visit we we still have some of the descendants of the gibbons family that live here in town um, one of them, Corby Stahl, he is on, he's a member of our tourism board, um, and he represents the children when they do a um, cemetery tour. Um, our local museum does a cemetery tour, and he represents the children at their graves um, to tell their stories so people can pay respect to them. So that it's, the, the people are still here. One of the jurors of the, um, the, first the first trial he has my maiden name, Martin oh, Kazee. So wow. immediately told my mother, get on Ancestry.com and let's see if we're related to this person. So she's currently researching that. Yeah, and that's uh, that, that can be an addiction if you get onto Ancestry.com. Oh, the, yeah. You go down the rabbit hole and you don't come out for a while. So, yeah, I probably won't hear from her for a week. Yeah, that, that can be scary. You might want to go check on her, bring her some food and water. <laughs> You know, make sure she's she's well hydrated and she's eating something. Um, so, what are what are their future beyond this book, Brandy and Joe? What's your plans to help continue to get this story out there? Well, we want to create some buzz um, here around town. Um, get the recently republished cover all over town. Um, get people to start asking questions. What happened? Um, who are these people? Who was Fanny Gibbons? Um, so yeah, we want to we want to get this story back out there um, and pay as much respect to the people of Ashland and the victims of all of the tragedies as much as we can. You know, Johnny, uh, th there's still a lot of people here in Ashland that have not heard this, you know, tragedy, right. and, and the ones that have heard of it just haven't heard the whole story. And and that was the goal here of, of getting this book out, so people could actually know the whole story, everything that actually went on. And uh, believe me, it took years of, of uh, research and and uh, finding out exactly what happened to get the whole thing done. Mm -hmm. And 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 again, I I wanted to make sure that it was written from the proper perspective, and that is from the people of Ashland, man. Yeah. You well, know, I mean, you, I didn't you definitely did. You you capture that tone. Yeah. 
So they didn't want it to come from some third party or some uh, foreign, you know, foreigner. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I think it turned out very well. I'm satisfied with it. The way you did the testimonies, you have the words in there, and especially with you using uh, J.M. Huff's um, research and then, of course, your own research that added into it. it it's a really good book. It's a page turner. You can't put it down. Um, Joe, let me, and Brandy, um, so, Joe, the book's available at ArcadiaPublishing.com and wherever local books are sold. Uh, Brandy, if people are interested in coming and visiting Ashland, do you have a website people can go to to look at? Yes, um, they can go to our website. It's VisitAshlandKY.com. VisitAshlandKY.com. All right, great. Um, Before we go, is there anything else you guys would like to add? Um. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, that pretty well covers it, Donnie. I should we sure do appreciate you inviting us on to the podcast. Oh, I appreciate, uh, appreciate you both that. being on. Yeah, thank you very much. Of course, and thank you, the audience, for joining me. The Ashland Tragedy is available now at ArcadiaPublishing.com and wherever local books are sold. If you have any questions for me or show suggestions, you can reach out to me at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. And as always, I want to thank Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the theme song. And you can find them by searching for Jane Bill's Unnamed Project on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and I'll talk with you again soon. <laughs>